said, we have a lot of fun in the Bible. And uh, I enjoyed that, Jimmy. That's good. Now, we got, I'll tell you what. See, this is where God's blessing is. Because God knows what I really like. So God gave us three harmonica players in our church. You only heard one so far. John back here plays harmonica. And Woody plays harmonica. Woody plays everything. But, oh boy. Can you do trios with the harmonicas? You know? Like, I've heard of the three amigos, the three harmonicas. You know? <laughs> I don't care. Tell you what, if we got, I've never heard three harmonicas together. If we got really good, yeah. That's right. Well, you just dated yourself 41 years and counting. The harmonicats. John, he's dead, man. The harmonic, that's right. The harmonicats. Yeah, I remember them. Didn't they play for the inauguration of George Washington? <laughs> I bet he wished they did. You guys get good, we'll get a big bus, go around the country. You harmonicize them and I'll preach, okay? That'll be good. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 2. It's good to have you here today. As I said earlier, we, we just have a fun time in the Word of God, and we, we love the book. And uh, nothing in this whole world better than just spending time with people that you love in the Bible. And I, it's, it's everything to us, and we just, we just love it. But you know, we've been, we've been focusing on Proverbs chapter 2, and we've got a ways to go here, because Proverbs chapter 2 is such a powerful powerful thing. Once we take time to show you what he wants you to get from it, then we're going to take some time and show you uh, what it does for you once you get it. And uh, it'll, it's, it's going to be a great study. But we've talked about, you know, receiving the Word of God, hiding the commandments and all that stuff, you know, inclining and hearing the wisdom, applying our heart. Today we're going to be at verse 3. And I want to read the first five verses again, and just so we keep a context here. But it says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and lifteth up thy voice for understanding. If thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for those that are here. We also pray for all those that are sick today, that uh, you'll take care of them, especially the little kids, Lord, and uh, we just pray you'll help them feel better, and uh, Lord, just watch over them and take care of them and, and bring them back to health. We miss them today, but we also love them and pray for them, Lord, and uh, we just ask you to, your hand to be upon them today. Thank you, Lord, for all the things that you gave us last week. Thank you, Father, for uh, today and for the opportunity to open up your word. Even now, we thank you. Looking forward to Thursday night, uh, another time in your word together. And help us, Father, just to, just to be a church that cares about people. Loving this book and loving God's people and any people, Lord, and showing them the Word of God. Help us today to find those things that we have for us. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, today we're going to talk about verse 3, which says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and lifteth up thy voice for understanding. We're going to talk about the concept of crying after the Word of God and lifting up your voice. Now, today it's going to kind of be a kind of a philosophical message. I woke up today in a philosophical mood. So... I, I, you know, I, I just want to, I want to ask you some questions, and then I want to look at some things. And I want to, I want you to look deep inside yourself today, and maybe this will be a, a, a component in your life that you need. I know it's certainly, if you're ever going to learn the Bible, it's something you're going to have to learn. And um, the thing I want to ask is, is do you have a prayer? And I don't mean a Hail Mary, you know, prayer or one of those. I mean, but do you have a, when you look at the Word of God, and you have time with God. Do you have a prayer that you have 
consciously put together for the purpose, express purpose, of asking God to teach you the Word of God. I've had people all my life say, well, you know what, I read the Bible and I just can't get anything out of it. And I'll ask them, you know, well, how much time do you spend praying before, for God to give you something? Or how much do you do, uh, you know, ask the Lord to show you some things? And they say, well, you know, I really don't, Bob. I, you know, I spend 15 minutes in the morning. If I spent five minutes in prayer, I only have 10 minutes left for the Bible. Well, maybe that's the problem, you see. In other words, <clears throat> there needs to be an attitude about the Word of God and being taught the Word of God, just like there has to be an attitude of the Word of God being the God's Word and what it will do for you in your life. And I think that, you know, we don't understand today as God's people the concept of prayer. And I get tired of saying this, and I'm probably you get tired of hearing me say it, but it's so true. Prayer is such a strange thing in our lives today. It really is. It's like everything else in the Laodicean church. The definitions and the real biblical concept has been lost in the sea of either misinformation or bad definitions. And we today, as God's people, prayer is important to us. And we like to give the, and I, and I, and we, we like to, and I would say if you would go into any church and you'd ask people, do you pray? Do you know how to pray? Do you, and, and everybody would probably say yes. I mean, prayer is something that's like, well, you know, to admit that you don't know how to pray and to admit that you don't pray is, is, a, is a terrible thing for a Christian because we ought to pray. But the truth of the matter is, and I know this is true because I deal with people all the time and I know the spirit of where we're at today. The real concept of prayer and the real definition of prayer has been lost today. And I know this. I know, we've talked about this before. I know that the Old Testament examples that you find that actually take place in the Old Testament are there historically for a reason. Many of them, and we talked about this a while back, many of them have a doctrinal application to the future. But they also have an application to your own personal life in an inspirational way. In other words, Old Testament examples many times will translate into New Testament principles. And a lot of times when you find something in the New Testament that you don't know how to define or you don't know what to do with it, or you don't know how to deal with it, if you'll go back and find the Old Testament example, it'll explain it to you in such great detail. Now that's the beauty about the Old Testament and the New Testament working together. That's the beauty of God writing one book, set of books in the Old Testament, another book in the New Testament, and one really explaining the other, and the other really just uh, going together hand in hand. It's an incredible thing. In Leviticus chapter 10, in the first couple of verses there, you have a story, and maybe it's a story that you read and you just passed over. But it's something that I read many, many years ago that I asked myself the question, why? And it's the story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were priests. And the Bible says that they offered strange fire before the Lord. And the Lord killed them. Now we read that and, you know, depending on our busy schedule or how much investigative work we want to do, we will either look at that deeper or just gloss, gloss, gloss over that and move on with life. But the, but the matter is that here's two men that the Bible says offered strange fire. Now, what does that mean? They offered strange fire before the Lord, and because they did that, God killed them. Now, what would be the big deal with God that two men would offer strange fire and God would kill them? There has to be some significance to that. And, of course, there is. I've talked to you before how that the Old Testament tabernacle 
The tabernacle that God gave Moses, the pattern to make in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the one that they carried with them, that tabernacle is the most unbelievable example in all of the Bible that will teach you about uh, historically, doctrinally, things in the future, but most importantly, your own walk with the Lord. And we've talked about this on Thursday night, how that tabernacle uh, had three compartments. And it had an outer court, it had an inner court, and then it had what was commonly called the Holy of Holies. And this is all explained for you in Exodus chapter 26. And if you ever get a hold of Arthur W. Pink's book on the gleanings in Exodus, he does a masterful job of laying this out. And, you know, it's an incredible thing to go through it. But you'll find that uh, within that tabernacle, you have all the elements of the New Testament Christian life. And we've talked about it before. I'm not going to dwell on all the other areas, but I want to dwell on one area about offering strange fire, because it's the key to prayer. And it's the key of lifting up your voice and asking God for something. It's the key to understanding it. Now, here's the deal. Back in the Old Testament, God gave them that tabernacle. I don't have time to go into all the ramifications, but if you go over to Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and 12 in there, that Bible says that that tabernacle that he gave is also a picture of our universe. There's three compartments. The Bible says there's three heavens. And it's an incredible picture of, 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 the, of the universe. I don't have time to get into that. That's way over where we want to go this morning. But I'm just giving you general information that down the line we'll pick up and come through through our Thursday night Bible studies or as we study. But the, the, the doctrinal application is that that is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. The historical application picture of it is that it is the place of worship where God pitched His tent with man. That's why Christ came uh, and that's why the Jews celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It represented the time that God dwelt with them in the tabernacle. Hence, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it represents the time that God come and dwelt with them in the Old Testament. God gives Moses the, the pattern for that. He tells him how to make everything. Everything in it has a purpose and a reason for it. And yet, when you look at it from a practical application, it represents your life and my life in our service for God. Every one of those pieces of furniture or components within that tabernacle represents something in your life and my life. Abihu and these two guys here, Nadab and Abihu, were priests. And the priest did his work within that tabernacle. That second compartment. He went from the first one where they had the brazen altar and the laver of water where the sacrifice was burnt on a brass grill, much like your charcoal grill and then he went from there into the second compartment that had the showbread type of the word of God the seven golden candlesticks type of the Holy Spirit of God we've talked about all this before and then there was a third place where those priests never went it's called the Holy of Holies and it represents the throne of God where God is and the only one that went in there was the high priest that high priest is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other sons of the priest are pictures of you and I. And oh, what a study that is to go back and look at that. We don't have time. That's not our message this morning. We're talking about crying after and lifting up your voice. We're trying to get you a prayer today, or at least an understanding of how to really learn the Word of God. 
Because learning the Word of God has nothing to do with your intellect or your ability to absorb or comprehend or whatever the case may be. It has to do with your ability of getting a hold of God and God saying, okay, I'm going to give it to you. We're going to talk about that today. Okay. Now, they went in there and they had the showbread. They had the candlestick. And up by the curtain, and that curtain was an incredible thing. It, it blocked the, 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 the light of God from the, uh, uh, from the, the second area. And oh boy, if you want to get into the universe and talk about the light of God and why you can't see it and what God put up there to see it and that curtain that we got up there that science don't know what it is, that's a great Thursday night Bible study question, but we can't deal with that either today. Well, I mean, come on, don't laugh at me. You want to stay here till 5 o'clock? No, don't answer that because some of you will. And we're going to eat at the Mexican restaurants with my favorite today called Al Calcho's right after we're done here. So anyway, you got this second compartment. And in it is everything that, that we need. And the priest, like you and I, did their work in there. The high priest went from that one into the third one. Now, the high priest is a type of Christ. And he goes from the sacrifice of the brazen altar up through the second compartment. And he's the only one that goes into the third apartment that sprinkles the blood on that. Now, that's a picture of Christ. Christ died at the brazen altar at the first heaven, planet Earth. He went up through the second heaven and into the Holy of Holies and offered his sacrifice before God. That's the picture. Real easy. Now, right before you go into that, behind that curtain, there's what is called the honor of, the, the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense in most churches today is the altar of nonsense. But in the Bible, it's the altar, it's the altar of incense. Now, that incense was a little thing there that had uh, bits of whatever in it that when you lit them, it give off a smoke. That smoke is called, believe it or not, holy smoke. Rose finds that funny. <laughs> holy smoke. In the Bible, there's two kinds of smoke. There's holy smoke and then there's unholy smoke. Oh, yeah, 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 there's two kinds of smoke. I mean, where do you think we get all these? Holy smoke! It comes from the Bible. Just ask Rose, she knows that. Jumping Jehoshaphat! Come from the Bible. See? I mean, it all, make my day! Man, that dirty, hairy movie where he pulled that big old 44. Make my day! Everybody thought, oh, he was talking about the second coming of Christ. Because that's the day in the Bible, and when Christ comes back, I won't need a 44 magnum to make my day. I just need him to come back. That'll make my day. See? Don't miss the boat. That was popular in Noah's time. <laughs> in other words, <coughs> Rose really liked that one. <laughs> what I'm saying is that that Bible is relevant. Amen. It's relevant. And, and here's a picture where you got this, this altar of incense. When it was lit and it burnt, it brought up a, a smoke and a smell. And that smoke and that smell filled that second uh, compartment and it drifted over into the third Holy of Holies. That smoke is a picture of prayer. And that altar of incense is a picture of our prayer life. And the thing that God killed those two men for is because the Bible says very clearly, oh, and if you, this is, if you don't get anything else out of what I'm saying, you need to understand this. 
the fire that burnt that incense had to come off the brazen altar where the sacrifice was killed. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into the ramifications of that in your prayer life. But it simply means this. The very basis of the understanding of what you are asking God needs to be understood in the light of the sacrifice that God made for you. Those two guys got the fire someplace else in the altar than in the altar of God out there in the brazen altar. And today in Christianity, I'm telling you what the problem is with prayer. We don't know that. And we are kindling our prayers with a fire that is strange to God. And God is not killing us because God is a merciful God today. But I'm telling you, if you don't understand, this is the problem with the Laodicean church. We've got a whole bunch of God's people who go to church, who do all the things that church people are supposed to do, but they have no understanding what they, why they're doing what they do. Now, I appreciate the fact that most of you pray. My question to you today, and don't answer it to, unto yourself, but my question to you is, do you know why you even pray? Or are you, are you hung up with a standard doctrinal interpretation teaching slash that everybody gets when you go to church? Now, you walk into the average bookstore, you will find 10,000 books on prayer. Prayer is a great money maker. A books on prayer are to Baptist what those little candles and penance are to the Roman Catholic Church. You light some candles, put some money in the box. No money in the box, stay in purgatory. No buck, no buck Rogers. I mean, you don't put any money in, you can light the candle, doesn't do any good. And that's how they rip you off. Well, Baptists rip you off by selling you thousands of books because you're good people. And you want to pray. And you know that prayer is important. But they write books about prayer that have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible's definition of where you need to light your prayer. Where that fire has to come from. You'll walk in there and here's the book you'll pick up. And it, it falls into the category of if you can name it, you can claim it. But whenever you ask in God's name, if you believe, God will give it to you. Oh, let me hear you raise your hand today. And if you believe it, you can, you can have whatever you want. The reason why you don't have a new car, you don't have this. That's why if you give 50, you, you just give every dime you've got today. When you go home, there'll be a new car in your driveway. But go eat first so I can get out of town before you get there and find out it ain't there so you want your money back. Name it, claim it. You'll find books. Here's one. You'll find books on different types of prayer. This guy will speak about intercessory prayer. Prayers of praise. Prayers of thanksgiving. You'll find books that deal with the attitude of prayer. You'll find books, believe it or not, that deal with the position of your body in prayer. I read, a, I read a, an article on prayer that a guy in a metropolitan church uh, wrote here last year. That he talked about the fact that the most important thing about prayer was the position of your body because the position of your body told God how contrite you really were. So you have to be on your knees, you have to fold your hands, you have to bow your head, 
You have to, because if you don't bow your head, then you're, it's your pride looking, or you won't bow your will to God. You gotta close your eyes, so you're shut out all the other things. And his position was, if you really want to get a hold of God, it is the position of your body. I don't know what that does if you're in an airplane flying over and it blows up and you get blown out of the plane at 60,000 feet and you're falling for three or four minutes. I guess position of your body is everything. How you pray in that situation. I'm telling you, prayer has nothing to do with the position of your body. That is so stupid I ain't going to deal with it anymore. I read a book actually it talked about that if you're a Christian, the clothes that you've got to wear to be the right kind of Christian, to have the right kind of power to God in prayer life. I ain't kidding you. I'm, I'm telling the truth. There was a book out a number of years ago that was given to pastors that talked about how pastors ought to dress to be godly to their people. How not to be too flashy, not, but, but, you know, conservative, but not flashy, but not, not dumpy either, you know, and you had to have a tie, you had to wear a suit, and all those things, man. If you didn't have a tie and a suit on, God just wasn't pleased with you. Like God's wearing a tie and suit. All kinds of weird stuff. You have the books that talk about the fact that you have not because you ask not. You have books that deal with if, if prayer, you pray, and then they add in the, the component of fasting. And then they have books that talk about prayer and your faith. The last book I read on prayer was the title, this was the title. This was titled, Prayer Changes Things, Having Power with God. And when I read, I read in that book, I thought to myself, that is the crowning book for the Laodicean church. Because that's where, that's how most people look at the Bible. Most people look at the Bible like you and I, or at least me and you, look at an L.L. Bean catalog. Or a Land's End. Or Sears and Roebuck. You flip through there, and you see something you want, and then you order it. And that's what we do with the Bible. That's our concept of the Bible. We think the Bible is an, a book that we order things from, and then prayer is our spiritual postal system by which the, 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 the order gets delivered. Never in my years have I ever read a book, other than one book, one book, that ever showed the, ori the origin of prayer from the Old Testament tabernacle and what that means. Only in one case in all of my life. And secondly, I, 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 only, I, I only read one book in my life that ever, that ever showed what the greatest Christian that ever lived said about prayer. Now, when it comes to authority in your life as a Christian, it isn't me. Never make it me. Because I'm human and I'm certainly not fallible or infallible. <laughs> I, I'm certainly, I, I'm certainly somebody that, <clears throat> that not intentionally, but I could be wrong and I wouldn't mislead you on purpose, but I could mislead you. I mean, I'm as fallible as anybody else and I can make mistakes just like anybody else does. So you don't ever want to make me your authority. Now you, you listen to what I say, but you prove all things and you hold fast to that which is good. The greatest example for you and for me in everything as a Christian is the Apostle Paul and what he wrote. He writes three quarters of the New Testament that in those three quarters of the books that he writes, he gives everything from a doctrinal teaching standpoint that the church needs to have. You ever notice that Paul's books, some of them are written to churches, some are written to individuals. 
The ones that are written in the churches are doctrinal positions of what the church needs to believe, needs to teach, and needs to understand. The ones that are written to individuals are written from a personal slant as an individual Christian what you need. Incredible. Now, where I teach what the authority teaches, you take it. Where I deviate from the Word of God and start to come up with all kinds of great concepts on my own, you drop kick me through the goalposts of life. We have to stay on the same page, and that page is out of a King James 1611 authorized version. Now, I've been asked this all my life. People will say to me, you know, they'll come to Bible study and we'll get a lot of good stuff, and they'll hear the preaching, you know, and they'll come up to me and they'll get me alone someplace, you know, and they'll say, hey, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest thing God ever showed you? What is the greatest thing God ever showed you? And they're, supposed, they're, they're expecting me to say, well, you know, the Antichrist is, you know, uh, is uh, Clinton, you know, or, or Hillary or whoever, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they come up with some great revelation and all this stuff. Let me tell you something. The greatest thing God ever showed me about myself came from the Apostle Paul. And it was about prayer. And this is not a lesson on prayer this morning. Oh, no, no. This is not a lesson on prayer. I'm getting ready to show you some things, but you need to understand some things before. The greatest thing God ever showed me, the greatest thing God ever showed me was about prayer, and it's a shocker. Because it is what you think. It isn't like, well, God showed me how to pray for the lost people in such a way that thousands of people will get saved. Well, God showed me the key to prayer. And I have the key to prayer that most people don't have. Therefore, hang out with me. Stick with me. And I'll show you the secrets of the universe beyond belief, beyond dimension. No, that's not what he showed me. You know what the greatest thing he ever showed me? Don't turn to it. I want you to just listen to me. The greatest thing he ever showed me was Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And it's a shocker. You know what he says? The greatest thing he told me is I have an infirmity. And you know what my infirmity is? I don't know what to pray for. He says, likewise, the Spirit <coughs> helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Not only do I not know how to pray, I don't know how to pray for the right things when I do pray. Back to that book. God changes things. Or prayer changes things, having power with God. Now that's where God's people are at today. They think prayer is my way, a nice way, to change God's mind. <clears throat> so I won't have to go through the nasty things in life. They think that prayer <clears throat> is something that I grab a hold of in great earnest when I'm in great need. That through prayer, I can change God's mind. And if that doesn't work, I'll just fast. Because when I fast and don't eat, God says... Well, I better answer your prayer because you're going to starve to death. What in the world are we thinking? We don't understand the Bible definition of prayer. We don't understand the Bible definition of fasting. Fasting wasn't given to any... Go back to the Old Testament. Find out the biblical definition of fasting. It has nothing to do with getting your prayers answered. Just like Prayer has nothing to do with you changing God's mind. Now, I will say this. As a Christian, there are things that you and I have a right to ask God to change. And there's the things that we don't have a right to God, ask God to change. 
Prayer isn't your avenue to get what you want in life versus what the bad things. Prayer wasn't given to change anything. Prayer was given to put you on the same wavelength of God, Exodus chapter 26, to accept what God's will is, no matter how hard it is, understanding, going back to the sacrifice on the brazen altar, that whatever you got to go through, He went through it first. Why? Because the next verse says, for all things work together for good. My job as a Christian is to understand the biblical definition of prayer, and then to find out in my life as a Christian the things that I have a right to ask God to change and the things that I don't have a right to ask God to change. It's as simple as that. I'll give you an example. Hezekiah. Now under the Old Testament law, <clears throat> he was a good king. We looked at him a couple of weeks ago. He came along too late. Too little, too late. But he did what was right and he was a good king. In the Old Testament, if you did what was right and was righteous, you had... The ability with God to ask God to come down and, and do some things. We don't have that here, but in the Old Testament it's a different setup. They're under law, we're under grace. God gives some concessions. In the Old Testament, you, if you were righteous and did what was right, you could ask God to give you riches and God would have to give you riches. That's why over there in the Gospels, when Jesus said, <coughs> you know, it was harder for a rich a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven, all the disciples looked at each other and said, well, well then who can be saved? Because in the Old Testament, riches was a sign of godliness. In the Old Testament, if you did what was right, you could ask God to kill your enemies. If they were legitimate enemies and they were stopping you from doing what God could do, David did it. You could say, God, avenge me. God, take care of my enemies. And God come down and whack them. And you could ask God for a longer life. You could ask God for a number of things. And that's Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets to the old. The prophet comes in and says, get your house in order. You're going to die. Well, what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah does the same thing we'd all do. He goes to God and wants to change God's mind. Certainly, God, you can't get along without me. And he winds around and he, he throws up all the right things that he did. He brings out his scorecard and says, Hey, look, under the Old Testament law, I did all these things and I'm asking you to change it. And God said, Hey, careful what you wish for. I mean, Hezekiah, do you think staying down here a little longer is better than coming up and pounding around with me? Hezekiah said, Well, I, I love you and I love all the things, but you know what? Oh, give me, just give me a little more time. God says, okay, we'll give you 15 more years. He couldn't even believe that. He had to have a sign from God, like we do. He asked for the, you know, for the, so the sundial to go back. We have our own little things that we ask for. God, show me, show me this is really, it's okay. Just show me. Lord, just, you know, have a car run through the red light. Oh, okay, there it is, Lord. <laughs> God, I'm glad you shaved me that son. Come on. He comes down there and he says, God said, I'll give you 15 more years. And in those 15 more years, you know what? He has a boy. That boy's name is Manasseh. And he does more to put Israel in the grave than almost any other man other than Ahab. You know what? Hezekiah would have been better off to go home with God when God wanted him to go. He stayed around 15 more years and produced one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever had. See, we don't always see it from God's standpoint. 
We don't always see it the way God sees it. And prayer, prayer, I'm not saying there isn't some things you can ask God to change. I'm saying you need to have understanding in the things that you ask Him about. Now, I said all that to say this, and this is not a study on prayer this morning. Now, when it comes to the Bible, you have a right to ask God to teach you. You have a right to ask God to teach you the Bible. You have a right to go to God and say, Oh God, teach me your word. In fact, it ought to be so prevalent in your life, it ought to be so powerful in your life, that it's, 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 it's something that is, 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 is there all the time. I promise you, and I don't wish this on anybody, just a point of illustration. Maybe some of you have been there, maybe some of you haven't. And I know that some of you are very godly here and you handle things in the right way. I'm, not, I'm just saying this. The average Christian today, if they found out they had some terrible terminal disease and they were going to die, not like we can fix this or not like well, it doesn't look good but we're going to do it. No, no, he went in and the doctor said, you've got one year to live. I promise you, if you're a saved person, the, the average norm, saved person, every minute of your life for the next year, you're going to be conscious of the fact, oh God, don't let me die. Oh God, help me. Oh God, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's, going, it's not going to be something you're going to forget and say, oh yeah, two weeks ago the doctor told me I was going to die in a year. I forgot that. No, it ain't going to be that way. You're going to think about it every moment of your life. And you're going to be talking about it with God every moment of your life. And I don't care. First thing you get up, I know how human nature is. The first thing you get up in the morning, I mean, you sleep night, you sleep good, and you wake up, and everything's peaceful, and then for a moment it comes into your mind, and then your day's wrecked. And then you get up, you know, you try to forget it, and you see something there, or you're driving down the road, you know, and you see a big billboard, you know, newcomers and sun, oh, and you think about it again. And, you know, you get it out of your mind, you think about it, you know, and then a good friend calls and says, hey, I hear you got some disease, you're going to die. Well, we'll let you know we're praying for you, brother. I mean, and that ruins your day. And it's something that hey, you just constantly go into God with. Well, let me tell you something. Being fine, healthy, and good as you are today, that ought to be the same attitude you have about learning the Word of God. It ought to be never out of your mind. It ought to be a constant thing. Oh, God, teach me that book. Teach me that book. And you need a prayer today. You need a prayer. You need to understand what it means to cry out and lift up your voice. Now, take your Bible and turn to Psalms 119. Oh, you might know we were coming back here. Psalms 119. This is where... The greatest man who ever lived, who had a heart after God, 176 verses, that is a prayer. David writes this down as a prayer. He's asking and telling. He's not only asking, he's telling. He's making a deal with God. And in this psalm, we find three statements of David that God said, that he makes a deal. And ain't nothing wrong with making a deal with God. He made one with you. He said, I died on the cross for you. If you confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has in the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's a deal. You can make a deal with God. David did. And in Psalms 119, verse 1 through 176, you have 176 petitions of a prayer. Every one of those petitions has to do with God giving you something about the Word of God. Well, let me just say this. Every one of those 176 fall into the three categories of David's, on uh, his statement about crying up and lifting out. When you read through that, 
When you come through there, you're going to see David's first statement. David's first statement, I mean, it's so clear. I mean, it isn't that he writes this out, this is my statement, statement number one. No, but it becomes so clear what he's saying as you read down through here. And the first statement that David makes in these 176 verses, he says, this book, <laughs> God's Word, is the greatest book in all the world, and I love it without measure. That's the first thing that comes out of this thing. Boy, when you start reading through Psalms 119, 1 through 176, the first thing that smacks you right between the eyes is David says, this is the greatest book the world has ever seen. God, there is nothing that can attain to your word, and I love it beyond everything else in this planet. Oh, that's the first statement that comes out of this. Because David had a prayer. And David's prayer is, oh God, teach me your word. And his prayer is an incredible prayer. And I'm going to show you how to put a prayer together out of here. The second statement he makes. Oh God, not only do I know it's the greatest book in all the world, and I love it beyond measure, but God, I have got to have it. I've got to have your word. Oh, that's what I meant. All day long, your mind mind just bombarded. I mean, you're doing your work, you're doing your job, but inside, you're excited about something that God gave you. And it just lights you to the place where it just magnifies you something more and more. I'll tell you. I'll give you an example. Yesterday morning, I was spending some time, and I worked on this, finished this up a little bit, and then I, I'm in the middle of putting my notes around, and I've been trying to spend time getting that done, and, and I've been working there in Matthew. And I've been thinking about something based on some of the things that you guys have said, stuff that I've, I've known for a long time, but I've just never, I never had the time just to correlate it all together. And I was coming through there, and I was over there in Matthew, and I started coming through, and I saw one note that I had put in there probably 20, 25 years ago. And I'd forgotten it was even there. That one little note and that one little concept, I had to take 20 minutes to recoup myself. It put, it turned the lights on. It put a concept that I had been working through and thinking about and trying to find the right pieces. I mean, I had to stand back and I just, when I, the rest of my day, I wouldn't have cared what happened. It wouldn't have made any difference if I had started the car and the engine would have blown up and I had started the other car and it would have blown up. It wouldn't have made any difference if I come back and the house was on fire. I would have just said, wow, God, what a great time we had this morning. Now all that does, it just fires you up to get more from the Word of God. And not only do you say, God, it is the greatest book the world has ever seen, but when God starts showing you those things, I mean... It's like I, I told some of you guys a while back. The Bible's like a big picture book. A picture puzzle with a thousand, thousand pieces. And what we do is the way to put those puzzles together is get all the flat pieces and build the corners around it. And then you work from the outside in. And as you begin to come, one piece at a time, a picture starts to emerge. And you read your Bible and you study your Bible and you pray over your Bible and you ask God, you get a tough spot where you can't get something. You just begin to get on your knees and you begin to ask God to give you something. And one, and sometimes God is so good. Sometimes that book is so marvelous. Sometimes God will just get over there and He's laughing in a corner and you're wondering what He's laughing at. And you're putting these puzzles, the pieces together, and you say, I've got this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece. I can kind of see it, but I'm missing about nine pieces and it's one piece at a time and I'll just stay with it. And about that time, God walks over and says, here, here's the nine you're looking for. Have fun. 
Whoa. Them pieces not only fall on the table, they go into the puzzle by themselves and that picture just goes whoop. And I mean suddenly you see it. Suddenly the lights are on. The alarms are going off. Suddenly, I mean everything, just bells and whistles are going off. God just gave you a great revelation. And you know what that does? It not only says to you the first statement that that book is the greatest book the world has ever seen. You come away from that saying, Oh God, I have got to have it. And I am not leaving your side in any case till you give it to me. I, I, not only do I love it, it is the greatest book. I'm God, I am sticking right here. I am going to dog you. I am going to stay with you. I, are you gonna, I am not leaving your side. You're not getting out of my sight. I want that book. And it permeates everything in your life. You know, outside the Word of God and what God has done in my life, there's been three things in my life that have taught me more about the Bible and God than anything else. And that's the way God designs it. God gives you the examples in the Bible, gives you the principles, and then He'll give you illustrations in life that coincide with the Bible that you can learn from. And if you're paying attention, it accelerates your growth process. If you're a dunce or a bugwit, you don't get it. I like that word, bugwit. If you're, if, you don't get it. If you're walking around and you've got your own head and your problems so much, you'll never see it. But if you see the Bible and you see the things that are out there, then you learn from it. I'll tell you the first thing that God used to teach me, outside the Word of God, some of the greatest lessons of life with my wife. And that's why God gives you a good wife. And a good wife will teach. Now, you can take two positions. You can be the macho man, you know, uh, uh, with the, you know, with a nacho bean dip that nobody's going to tell you what to do. And you can walk around, you know, and you know, you're, well, you're the servant. You know, you do this, you do that. I'll make the decisions. Or, and you, in, that, in that case, you're a, you're a bugwit. Or, you can understand that she is a help meet. And God gave her to you as a help meet. That word meet, it isn't mate, it's meat. Australians have mates. God's people have meats. God gave He gave the animal mates. A lion saw a female lion and said, "That's my mate." The dog saw the other female dog and said, "That's my mate." When Adam saw his, he said, "That's my meat." She's going to help meet my deficiencies in my mind and my brain because she makes the other half of me up. Second thing was my kids. When you have kids. You understand how stupid you look to God sometimes. Because once you understand the concept that I'm to love my kids like Christ loved me, and you're putting that role model to be like a type of Christ to them, oh, ho, 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 ho. Boy, then you have to walk the line. And you watch them where they're struggling with authority, they're struggling with this, they're struggling with that. You understand why, why, why you have struggles as a Christian. You can either learn from the things in life, or you can just be oblivious, be a bugwit to the things in life. My third things, this is probably the goofiest of the three, but it's true, it's my dogs. No, I'm a dog freak. I'm a dog freak because I'm a Christian. And I think if you're a Christian, you need to have a dog. Because the Bible says, in an unsaved state, you're a dog. Unsaved man is a picture of dog in the Bible. 
And we look over there, you know, we read over there, we said, over there we're talking about the dog in the book of Proverbs and Peter, we're talking about the dog returning unto his vomit, you know, and eating his own vomit. We think of that, oh, I just can't, I can't think of that. Oh, no, before you were saved, what are you talking about? You went back to that vomit pit every Friday night, every Saturday night. What are you talking about? Now, I got, uh, uh, my prayer every morning when I get up is this, oh, God, help me be as good as my dogs think I really am. I got three labs. A black one, a brown one, and a white one. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I'm biblical. Now the black one, her name is Tinker. She's a class act. She is the best dog the world has ever seen. But she has her own streak of independence. She loves me. She wants to be with me. But there comes times when she says, okay, I want to do the dog thing. Now, her dog thing is playing ball. She will chase the tennis ball till you die. And I have never seen a dog in my life get more. In fact, I don't even use, I don't even use, uh, my arm gave out years ago. I take a tennis racket. And we go up to the field, and I'll just whack that thing, and she'll run down there. And when she comes back up, I mean, you just got to see her face. She'll lay that ball down there, and she'll, she'll back up, and she'll back up, and she's got her arms spread, and her tail's going, and her eyes are as bright as laser beams, and she's looking at that thing, and I'll tell you what, I've done it where I've said, okay, and, I've, and she's been from here six feet away, and I've whacked that thing on the ground like it was shot out of a gun, and she catches it in her mouth. I, she's come back and brought that back with his blood on it, where her lip is cut, where that ball hits her so hard. You know what? She is a professional ball player. She will play ball. I mean, I took her home one time, and she, she was so tired, she just flopped and rolled down the hill. I thought she was dead, and she was so tired. And, and she will play till she dies. She loves me. She wants to be around me. But you know what? There's times when she wants to do her dog thing that she's the professional ball player, I don't, I'm, I'm going out and doing my thing. Then we got Daisy. Daisy's the little white one. Younger than Tinker. She's a lovely little gal. The best thing she does is she sleeps on her back with a lace right up in the air with her head off, and she sleeps sound snoring like any man you ever saw in her life. She loves me. She likes to play ball, too. She's learning from the big sister. But she has her moments when she just wants to be do her own thing. I mean, I'm sitting on the couch watching television. One of them will get in the other chair. The other one will get underneath over there or sleeping on the floor. And they'll be over there. And they just, they do their thing. They chew their bones. They do their stuff. And they, they love me. They're good. But they're independent. They take care of their, they do their own dog things. And then there's Buddy. Buddy's the big old brown lab. And I'll tell you what. Buddy, there ain't a, there ain't a dumber dog in the world than Buddy. No. No, 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 no. I think he's got Down syndrome myself. No, no. Tinker, hit the ball. Whack! I mean, she, had, she doesn't just go. She, she meets that ball with an equal force and she grabs it. I'll tell you what. I've seen her where, and, and Daisy, she'll, she's, she's not quite, she's younger. She's not quite as coordinated. And she'll, but she catches it. I'll throw it up in the air. Daisy will jump and turn around and grab that ball and come down. It'll bounce off of Daisy's nose and Tinker will go through, sail through the air. Whack! And grab that ball. Now, buddy, 
you throw the ball, it hits him in the nose, he goes, ha! You throw the ball up in the air, he jumps up, he loses his balance, he falls over on his back, and he just lays there and looks at you. He ain't a ball player. He only does one thing good, and I can't mention that in a mixed crowd, because it, but he, he does them all over the yard, and he does it well. But I want to tell you something. That dog will never leave my side. If I'm sitting over at my desk, studying my Bible, look around, Tinker, she's in the blue recliner with her leg kicked out, she's sleeping. Daisy's on her back on the coffee table with her leg straight up in the air, head over. Buddy is down around my feet. I'll be doing something, all of a sudden I'll feel this cold nose on my back. I'll look around and he's wrapped himself around my chair where I can't move that chair that, that he doesn't know. He's going to sleep, but he's going to sleep in the position that if I move, he knows. I'm sitting on the couch, he's got to have his head somewhere on my body. Maybe it's on my foot, maybe it's on my leg, maybe it's on my, uh, but someplace. He's got to be connected with me some way that no matter, I am, Buddy has made his mind up that I am not going nowhere that Buddy doesn't know where I go. He has got it figured out. He may never catch a ball. He may never be the exilic. You'll never see him in the Dog Olympics on Pet Channel. Never happen. But I'm telling you, he'll never leave my side. He wants one thing in life and one thing only. One thing. He don't care about ball. He don't care about going out. He don't want to go for a walk. He wants one thing in life, and that is to be by my side and me never be separated from him. How many times I've looked at that and I've said to God with tears running down my face, God, that's the way I want to be. I want to be so touched on you that you don't move that I don't know it. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, God, I've got to have it, and I'm not leaving your side till you give it to me. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, that's a goofy thing. Hey, go over to Matthew chapter 15, and you'll find a woman over there that did the same thing. She came to Jesus, and Jesus told her no the first time. She stuck with him. He told her no the second time. She stuck even closer. She told him the third time, and then he racially insulted her by calling her a derogatory name, and she looked at him and said, you're right, Lord. Now, can I have what I need because I ain't leaving your side? Do you give it to me? You know what he called her? A dog. And he says, I'm not giving you this. Why should I take what I've got for Israel and give it to you dogs, Gentiles? She looks at him and she says, you're right. 100%, Lord. But you know what? I'm your dog. And Proverbs says, the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. Now, how about it? And he said, great is thy faith, woman. Only two one in the Bible, the Bible says, were great. Remember that little thing I gave you about who walked with God, who was God's friend, who God loved? Well, there's only two women in the Bible that the Bible says they were great. You want to be a great woman? You want to be a great Christian? Study those two women. And one of them is right there. Now, her name and that is not given. In my little note along the side of my wide margin Bible, I've given her a name. What do you think it is? Buddy. The third thing. Lord, I'll make you a deal. You give me that book and I'll tell everybody and anybody about you and your word. 
Lord, I believe this book is the greatest thing in the world. Oh God, I've got to have it. And then the third thing, Lord, if you give it to me, I'll make you a deal. If you let me get that book, I will tell everybody I meet. Now I'm going to share something with you this morning. 30 years ago, I recognized this. And I took Psalms 176, knowing 119 verse 100. 1 through 176, knowing what it is, the heart of God, the soul of God, the prayer for David to learn the Word of God. And I wanted to be like David, even though I'm not. I wanted to be. And I still want to be, even though I'm not. I want to be. That's my goal. That's my desire. And even though I know I'm not, I want to be. And I want to show you my prayer. And you know what I used to do sometimes? I'd sit down in the room, and I'd put a chair there, and I'd sit in this chair before I'd ever study my Bible. I'd read this to God. And I'd say, God, this is what I'm asking you for. And God, I'll make you a deal. I'll make you a deal. I'll make you a deal. You give me this book, and I'll tell everybody about it. You give me this book, and I won't be afraid to tell anybody the story. You give me this book, and I'll take on anybody, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Because I know, Lord, that this is your book. And I'm telling you, at, at, at some point in your life, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, you need to get you a prayer. Because the Bible says you have to cry up and lift up your voice for understanding. Now, when I came through this, I saw the three statements that David made. Then I also saw the, the characteristics of David's life that come out of this. And I started my prayer. I'm just going to read you through it. It's very quick. I started with verse 9. And I said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Because I realized that I had to get clean to get God's word. Then I jump down to verse 11. I say to the Lord, Lord, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I jump down to verse 16. I've got a mark in my Bible. Every Bible I've got has got that prayer. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. I jump down to verse 18. And here it comes. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. I come to verse 27. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous work. Make me. Because, Lord, it's not natural for me. I'm a sinner. I'm like what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I, his thoughts aren't my thoughts. God, make me. Then verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, verse 34, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Then I jump over to verse 89. Oh, yes. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations, and thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. Then I jump down to verse 97. Oh, how many times God lived this out of my life. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Through thy commandments thou hast made me wiser than my enemies, for they ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. 105. Thy word, oh yes, is a lamp unto my feet, and light unto my path. Verse 113. Vain thoughts. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. 127. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above five gold. Verse 136. Happened too often. River of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. 162. I rejoice that thy word is one that find great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. And then lastly, I close my prayer with this. 176. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant for I do not forget thy commandments. You see? Now that took longer than a lot of God's people spend reading their Bible. 
But you only get out of something what you put into it. You wonder why you can't get anything from God and the Word of God? It isn't because of your IQ. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that you've taken the time to ask God to teach you those things. David made three statements. He says, this is the greatest book the world has ever seen. I love it. He says, oh God, I'm not leaving your side till you give it to me. And he said, Lord, he says, I'll make you a deal. You give me that book and I'll tell everybody about it. And from those, that, that 176 verses, you find, you find the characteristics of David's life. In verse 9, you find the cleansing of David. You have to get clean. David knows he has to get clean, but more importantly, he knows how to get clean. You see the cleansing of David in this chapter. David understood that being clean before God was the key. Then the second thing you see in here is the mission of David. David understood that God was going to use him to stand before kings of the world to tell the story of Christ. Then you see the third thing, the wisdom of David. Verse 89, the word was settled in heaven. David said, you know what? <laughs> there ain't nothing else in this world, man, that's going to beat this book. And I am going to invest my life in learning everything about it. The cleansing of David, the mission of David, the understanding and the wisdom of David all led to the attitude of David. The attitude was, you know what, God? I love you. I love you. And I don't care what happens in life. I don't care the ups and the downs. I don't care if I fall or I stand. I'm always going to remember that your book is the book. Crieth and lifted up thy voice for understanding. A prayer. You and I, as God's people, if you want to learn that book, it's more than just reading it and studying it. It's more than just coming to church and coming to Thursday night and putting your notes down. It's coming to the place where you have a time with God that you on your own. Don't steal my prayer. You know what? There's 176 verses in there. You know what? That is about 10 billion different prayers. The combinations of 176 aren't even computable on a computer. It's billions, billions, and billions, and billions of combinations. Every Christian in this world could go there and put their prayer together. Not maybe the same way I did it. I'm no standard for it. I'm just telling you what I needed, what I did, and God taught me that book. And I'm telling you, if you don't lift up your voice and cry, if you don't ask God, if you don't develop that thing and you say, God, I know it's your book, and the only way I'm going to learn it is not through Bob, not through old paths, not through going to Bible study, not through... Those are all good, and they'll all help. But the bottom line is, if you don't open my understanding and you don't give me those things, and you don't open up my eyes that I can behold wondrous things out of thy law, I'm not getting nothing and lots of times because we don't get the book is because we don't understand prayer. As a Christian, there's things you have a right to ask and there are things you don't have a right to ask. And that's not our study this morning. I ain't getting into it, but it all goes back to that tabernacle where that brazen altar, where that fire come off that thing. And God killed two men because they got the fire from the wrong place. In our prayer life, too many times, we get the fire that lights our prayers from the wrong place. And I'm telling you, I'm here to help you. I want everybody, every one of you to stand on the judgment seat of Christ and have to back up dump trucks to haul it all away. But it's going to take you understanding that the world we live in, it's tough. And the world we live in is going to batter you down every chance it can. That's why we as a church have to take ourselves and build the foundation of the Word of God, take the new people that God gives us and love them and teach them and train them in the Bible. And we have to do what God wants us to do because there's a day coming we're all going to stand before God. And I'm telling you, there isn't any reason on this planet why you as a Christian shouldn't have everything that God wants you to have. You have to cry out and you have to lift up your voice for that book. God will give it to you, but you've got to ask him for it. You've got to show him how bad you want it. 
You remember your mom and dad didn't always give you everything when you were growing up. They made you shovel the snow, cut the grass. Maybe it was a bicycle you wanted. Dad could have went out and bought it, but didn't. He made you mow the lawn, made you do this for all summer long, and then you got it. You know why? Because when you ask for something and you work for something, God will give it to you, and it means more to you. Why, God gave the book and laid it down here, and look what man has done with it. God sent his son. Look what man did with them, him. But when it comes to understanding that book, God draws a line, and he says, I'll give it to you. But giving it to you and you have it in your hand doesn't mean you understand it. And the understanding comes when I open your understanding, when I give you the great things in it, when I build a relationship with you that the secret things that are mine become yours. When you open up that jewelry box of your heart and I hide those treasures in there, that's when it becomes real and that's when it becomes yours. And that only happens when you get that place in your life and you say, God, This book is the greatest book this world has ever seen, and I understand it. I know that there is no other Bible, there is no other book in this world that is your word, and this is it. And God, I ain't leaving your side. My head is going to be at your feet, around your throne. My cold nose is going to be in your back. I am going to be there. I am. You are not moving that I don't know where you're at because I'm going with you. And, oh, God, I'll make you deal. You give this unworthy dog who deserves hell. You give me that book and allow me to have a precious portion of that perfect book that the most book this world has ever seen. And I promise you, God, I promise you, I'll not be afraid of anybody and I'll never compromise with that book you give me. I'll make you that deal. I know what you want. You know what I want. You give it to me, and I'll be one you can count on. I can't say I'll live a perfect life. I can't say I won't make some mistakes. But I'll say one thing, Lord. When it comes to this book, there'll be no other book go forth out of my mouth. And everybody will know when I die what book he believed and what he stood for. That's the key. That's what it makes. That's what it takes to be the man or the woman God wants you to be. You need a prayer. You're not a glorious, flowery prayer. But you need to have a prayer that you say to God, God, teach me this. Spend time giving it to God. You know, God loves to hear his word. Take some time, some time in a room and just open up the book and read it back to him. Every head bowed and every eye closed.